0: Investment Insights by Aberdeen Standard Investments.
1: Welcome to this Aberdeen Standard Investments podcast. This is the ASI Fixed Income Team Talk, and I'm your host, Amit Maudgill. I'm a fixed income investment specialist at Aberdeen Standard Investments. This is the lockdown edition, so you'll have to bear with us. We're all working from home and uh, technology is hopefully going to be with us, but um, I'm sure we'll get through it. So today's team consists of Liam O'Donnell, who's head of nominal rates and works in our government bond team. Hi, Liam. Hello. We also have Roger Webb, who works in our corporate bond team and is deputy head of Sterling Investment Grade and Aggregate. Hi, Roger. Hello. And we also have Stephen Logan, who works in our high yield team and is head of European high yield and global leverage loans. Hi, Stephen.
2: Hello. Hi.
1: And finally, uh, leave the best till last, is Edwin Gutierrez, who works in our Emerging Market debts team and is head of Emerging Market Sovereign Debt. Hi, Edwin. Hi, Amit. Excellent, so that's the team for the lockdown edition. Before we kick off, we'll play uh, a little feature that we started in the last edition, which is aimed at getting you to know your speakers a little bit better. It's called "What's Your Favorite." So the topic for this particular "What's Your Favorite" feature is "What's Your Favorite Lockdown Activity." You know. So what we'll do is I'll kick off, and then we'll we'll ask Liam, Roger, Stephen, and Edwin to let us know their favorite lockdown activity. So for me, more recently, there's been many, but more recently it was uh, my mum's sixtieth birthday. So I had to be very inventive and try to do a lot of activities. Uh, to make a, a great day for her, so we had breakfast, afternoon tea, and then I had a Zoom video call set up with about sixty people to uh, see her cut her cake. So that's probably been my favourite lockdown activity so far.
3: Liam, if you want to, absolutely. Um, I, I guess uh, I mean my favourite lockdown activity. Uh, I think is is a relatively uh, positive one for me personally. I think uh, it, it's 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 running. I've taken up to. Um, To running, uh, I had signed up to uh, to, uh, participate in the Edinburgh Half Marathon, which was scheduled for last weekend, Um, and I actually managed to run the course uh, on Sunday, even though uh, the the event was cancelled, so um, I've definitely enjoyed uh, the better weather we've been having in Edinburgh recently, and and it's been a a good excuse to, to get out and run a bit more.
1: Brilliant. And Roger? Ah, um
4: mine's probably fairly similar to, to Liam's in that the time that lockdown's given us means that I've got a bit more active. Um, you'd probably be surprised to hear. Uh, my wife foolishly bought a Peloton bike at the start of lockdown. And I've been on that almost daily. I quite like the classes that, that we get on there, the different trainers. Um, unsurprisingly, I've not not lost any weight because lockdown's obviously given us more time to, to drink and eat as much as we ever did. So uh, um, I think that's my guilty, guilty sin.
1: Brilliant. Thanks, Roger.
2: So Steve. Hello. Well, um, I mean, it's it's pretty, I guess, average as well, but it's it, the lifesaver is getting out for a lunchtime run in between hours and hours of, of video conference calls. Um, and I guess just to add later on in the week, I guess, the proximity to the to the bar um, after a, a long, hot day in the in the, in the office here. So um, just to offset all that good lunchtime running. That's it from me
1: nice nice i like that i like that the, the beer trolley is never far
5: away <laughs> and edwin yeah unfortunately i'm a bit of the antithesis of liam and steve because my favorite lockdown activity has been making homemade ice cream with the kids and take advantage of the warm weather we've been having and trying to squeeze into my suit trousers again whenever that shall be <laughs> brilliant brilliant well
1: we'll crack on with the the lockdown edition Well, first of all start off with Liam, we'll move on to corporate bonds with Roger once we've done that, then we'll move on to high yield and finally we'll ask Edwin to to give us his views on emerging markets. So Liam, just to kick off on your macro and, and kind of the government bond space, we've seen a lot of central bank action in response to the pandemic, how do you think such policies are going to evolve in terms of cuts in interest rates and also the fiscal stimulus we've seen from governments as well. What do you think that will look like going forward and have you seen any flexibility across the kind of different regions and economies with respect to central bank action?
3: Uh yeah, thanks I mean it's it's, it's a great question. I mean, I think just at the outset I think it's important to 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 know just you know how powerful and aggressive the initial response um by central banks was. And and I think it was obviously necessary given uh, the nature of the crisis and the scale of the economic crisis that the pandemic has 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 left us in, um, I think you know. Case in point would be you know taking the example of the Federal Reserve who um, announced essentially an unlimited QE program, um, which did provide the necessary support to markets and and provided confidence that the Federal Reserve you know were. Willing to do essentially whatever it takes to uh, minimize, um, where possible, the uh, unnecessary collateral damage from the pandemic. However, it wasn't just the Federal Reserve that, that that took significant steps and moved into previously uncharted waters. You know, we saw global central banks around the world, from from Australia, New Zealand, Canada, um, venturing into into new programs to stimulate markets, uh, like uh, asset purchase programs. Um, in order to kind of to 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 galvanise confidence, and and we saw you know both the UK and the eurozone as well, um, you know relaunch uh, existing uh, purchase programmes that they had uh, in the previous uh, financial crisis. Uh, but I think what was clear was the desire to kind of uh, support markets was was universal. I think you know how how I would expect it to evolve going forward. I think um, you know the the, the term. You know, maximum flexibility comes to mind. I think you know, central banks have shown that they're prepared to do whatever it takes, um, and I think that they will uh, continue to um, provide uh, as much support as is necessary while the the, the pandemic continues to constrain activity. Um, I think we we are starting to see some signs that that some central banks are. are prepared to to also kind of taper the support packages uh, you know as as kind of lockdown measures ease we we have seen that um from the federal reserve and we have seen that from the australian central bank as well um but i still think that you know the overarching commitment to do uh, as much as 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 they can to support markets will endure um so i do think that if we do see an, an unnecessary tightening of financial conditions that we will see central banks you know come back to the market with support um on your final uh, question around flexibility um you know i think that is, you could argue that um you know there potentially isn't much more room to, to cut rates uh, further across you know uh, g10 and developed markets um you know we are starting to talk about things like negative rates um but i i, th- I think that there are you know central banks in general are quite comfortable that they have the tools and the flexibility required to deal with uh, the economic fallout from the crisis. Um, you know, I would expect uh, you know further measures, as as I've mentioned, uh, you know, from the US and, and other central banks, if if we started to see potentially a, a double dip on the back of uh, the pandemic. Um, potentially, the only outlier from a developed markets perspective is 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 in Europe, um, where you are seeing some political hurdles. to to further support measures from the ECB, um, which which makes it a little bit more difficult um, from from a European perspective.
1: Thanks, Liam. Uh, And just actually touching on, you mentioned the ECB there, that kind of brings me on to kind of another point I think is worth touching on. In Europe, we've seen negative
3: interest rates around for for quite some time. Um, but I guess is this becoming a real possibility in the UK? Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 a good question. It's it's um it's certainly um something that's that's been talked about a lot more uh, openly uh, by MPC members over the last couple of weeks. Um, I mean, historically, uh, the previous guidance had suggested that. Um, the bank uh, looked uh, at interest rates as having a kind of a natural floor uh, close to, but but not at zero percent. We're obviously very, very close to that right now. And uh, we've seen recently uh, the governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, suggests that um, they weren't ruling out the idea of taking uh, interest rates negative in the UK. Um, so I think it's important to, to kind of to, to put it in context of, of kind of what the bank is trying to achieve. Um, I think you know, while uh, I don't believe that uh, negative rates are likely in the UK in the short term, um, I think it's self-defeating for, for any central bank to, to, to kind of rule out um, further measures of, of easing uh, monetary policy. Uh, whether or not they intend to do it in the short term is, 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 is almost uh, secondary. I think, you know, their task right now is to, you know, support markets uh, as much as they can. And, you know, uh, not ruling out the potential for negative rates in the UK it, it seems sensible um uh, rather than potentially kind of closing closing that door permanently or 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 um eliciting a, a kind of a negative market response on the back of on the back of a kind of a relatively hawkish message um so while i don't think it's 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 something that we 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 will see in the very very short term in in the UK or, or potentially uh in into uh, 20 at the end of 2020 i do think that Um, you know, should economic conditions warrant, um, you know, further measures, um, and and we are in a situation where, you know, inflation is running below and well below uh, the MPC target, and they feel like um, financial conditions are too tight, um, then I I, I can't rule out the idea that we do get negative rates in the UK. And I think that, you know, it's important to to, to realise that this is a kind of, we're dealing with, you know, a changing landscape, Constantly, and I think it's important that you know central banks, you know, uh, adapt to um, you know the the, the new um, set of circumstances that they're faced with. So um, I think it, it's 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 important to kind of keep the idea of negative rates in play, and I think that's what the, the Bank of England are doing. Yeah, I think that I think that's a, f- a valid point. I guess going on to
1: Europe, have you seen any kind of dispersion or difference between? You know the different economies in Europe and, and and how they are progressing through this current environment we're in.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a good question. I think what we're seeing is 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 a kind of a symmetric shock to the global economy, but asymmetric impacts for the eurozone, uh, in particular the you know northern European countries versus southern European countries. You know, we're seeing countries like Italy and Spain. Um, you know where where the economic impact is is much much greater, um, creating kind of underlying tensions for for the eurozone project as a whole. Um, and I think that this is something that's going to be key for investors over the next you know couple of quarters um, because uh, the 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 economic impacts have been you know relatively asymmetric, um, with with northern European countries doing better. Uh, the underlying tensions within the eurozone uh, have been exacerbated, and I think that. You know, this is something that we're focusing on quite closely. You know, in our funds. Um, I guess the only thing I would add is, is we, we have seen some positive signs recently with the the Merkel Macron uh, recovery proposal. Um, but I think it's 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 still, uh, you know, we're treating this still with a a sense of caution because I think political difficulty uh, still remains, um, and it doesn't really uh, solve the the issue associated with the the large stock of of debts that 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 is kind of is a feature of 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 uh, some of the peripheral countries i guess talking about governments so we we've talked about central
1: banks earlier um in, in this in this part of the um the podcast i guess talk about governments they've also come to the the party to fight the the pandemic in terms of fiscal policy clearly we've seen a lot of uh governments expand their their debt you know as a as a way of trying to Provide stimulus and support to 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 various economies. How do you think that is going to evolve going forward uh, across the kind of key regions?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the the, the fiscal response has has been you know truly remarkable. I think uh, if if we were to go back twelve months and 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 uh, think about the sort of fiscal response we could see from governments, um, you know, we would have been very very surprised at the scale and the size of of, of the package that we've seen announced. Uh, you know by governments around the world previously fisc- uh, hawkish governments in terms of fiscal spending have essentially crossed the Rubicon and, and, and opened up um you know spending plans you know notably germany um but I think you know the 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 sort of numbers that we're talking about you know in double digit percentages of gdp uh is is truly uh you know truly sizable and and it and it will have you know significant impacts you know for uh you know global growth for Um, you know, budget deficits and for future, future bond issuance. Um, So I think going forward, I think it's unlikely that we're going to see, you know, further packages of similar magnitude. But I do think that, you know, while the pandemic remains a threat, uh, you know, in the absence of a vaccine, that, you know, governments will continue to release additional support packages where they think they are necessary. Um, So I don't think it's over from a fiscal impulse point of view. That's great. Thank you very much, Liam. That's very
2: informative.
1: It's always good to understand from a macro perspective how really things are evolving and changing. I guess now when we look at the the, the corporate side, it'd be good to hear from Roger on uh, the investment grade side. We saw huge widening in, in investment grade, you know, the higher quality part of the market post the coronavirus sell-off. I think it's probably one of the worst monthly returns since uh, the global financial crisis. Um Roger, what, what areas um, at the moment uh, are your team and, and you guys favouring and what areas are you looking to avoid? Yeah, thanks, Emmett. Um
4: Yeah, as you say, we saw massive spread widening. Uh, the asset class was completely shocked like other asset classes and obviously, obviously delivered some particularly negative returns through the month of March. Um, probably a sharper, sharper sell-off than we saw in at any time during the global financial crisis, but obviously not as Not as lengthy, not as profound in the end, so far at least. And we've seen a recovery subsequently with spreads tightening, making back probably about half of what they lost in spread terms um, during March. So that leaves the asset class in a still challenging but quite attractive looking position. Uh, I think we're going to see some further rating actions in terms of rating downgrades. Uh, Which leaves investors a little bit nervous, but the policy response that we've seen that Liam's already talked about in terms of fiscal and monetary responses favours the asset class quite materially. And investment grade with bond buying programmes in particular is is particularly the focus of of attention. And that's really been the driving force behind the rally. So despite deteriorating fundamentals, we've seen a recovery in the asset class because there's been a wall of money attracted to it. Um, that leads some people wondering whether there's any value left because the rally's been quite quite brisk as well. Um, and single A's, higher quality credit, single A rated and above, have, have performed particularly strongly because there's been a a wall of money from pension funds, in particular, and pension funds are, are attracted towards higher quality credit from a regulatory point of view. Um, on the other side of that, you've got triple B rated credit, sub, so above high yield, above sub investment grade, but still in that and still in that investment grade category. I think that leaves triple B rated credit looking quite attractive. That's a big proportion of the market. Um, Investors are clearly concerned that some triple Bs are going to be downgraded to to sub investment grade into the high yield market, and that that creates problems for for investors. Um, But I think the fact that pension funds have avoided it, that real money investors are worried about those downgrades, means that triple Bs look attractive. Um, That doesn't mean all triple Bs. Obviously, you've got good and bad within every rating category, and the sectors that that I think we prefer is still financials we still like the banking sector and this time around I think the banking sector is probably part of the solution rather than part of the problem that it was in the global financial crisis and again the the response from central banks around the world has been to support the financial system to enable banks to continue to lend at a time of acute stress so banks are favored um we like some the the telecom sector for instance is one of the one of the sectors we particularly like it's not not particularly affected by uh, the drop-off in demand that we see through the COVID crisis. And there are one or two other sectors, infrastructure-type sectors, uh, logistics, businesses. We, we continue to like there's quite a significant um, exposure to both those sectors in the in the investment-grade market. Airports specifically, I think, are quite interesting. Airports are um, structurally important to to economies, and their big issue is in the investment-grade market. Obviously, risk of downgrades, but I don't think there's risk that Heathrow ends up in sub-investment grade, so I think that particular structure, which is quite a big one in the UK investment grade market, is is relatively attractive. Um, On the other side, there are businesses that have structural challenges, Um, clearly in the UK retail sector had structural challenges to start with, with or without this crisis, so I think that continues to suffer. Um, I think for for, the number of people that are entering shops will continue to fall off or won't recover to the levels we saw pre-crisis, and as I say, we already had structural challenges in the retail sector. And you can add to that one that didn't have structural challenges before, but perhaps net does now, is the real estate sector, which is obviously going to be impacted by, by that retail sector where we're, we're likely to see companies falling over. And also with the office sector where we're likely to see a change in, in use of offices going forward, whether people work from home more or or don't return in the same numbers as they have to offices means that I think over time rents will, will fall in that sector and cause it some challenges.
1: Thanks, Roger. I guess you've explained how there was quite a big sell-off or, or as spreads widened, and then there's been a bit of a a decent recovery in terms of spread tightening has been seen. So given that change in valuations that's occurred, what do you think right now? Does this represent good value relative to history? And bearing in mind that the areas you were you were just talking about there, in terms of, you know, having to look at the the structurally sound businesses versus those that you think are going to have challenges.
4: Yeah, see, so yeah, that's an interesting point because I think on balance, if you look at history, we look quite attractive. The asset class looks quite attractive. Um, spreads on average, in investment grade of, of over the course of the history that we have, which goes back to the late nineteen eighties. Um, have averaged about 130 over government bonds, and they're materially wide of that at the moment. Um, so on on paper, they look attractive. That being said, I think some sectors and the higher quality sectors from a relative value perspective don't look that attractive anymore and are back to those long-term averages, whereas those lower quality sectors and triple B's in particular probably do look relatively attractive. But I think it's become, from our perspective, a stock pickers' market and and a a sector picker's market much more. We're going to have to focus much more on sectors that will and are robust enough to survive, that have the balance sheets to survive, that have the business models to get them through and and adaptive adaptive business models, if you like, those that can change and adapt to a new environment are the ones that will continue to survive. So rather than just saying the asset class is cheap per se, I'd rather say there are some very cheap areas of the market um, that we're looking at at the moment. And that occurs across all currencies. The dollar market in particular has looked particularly cheap in the last month or two through March and April um, where we've seen some particularly attractive new issues come to that market. Companies that need to fund themselves um, and that want to fund themselves at what are very low yield levels, admittedly wide spreads, but given underlying government bond yields, um, quite attractive all-in yields and, and those sort of areas have attracted us into to dollar credit more than it has into sterling credit for the time being.
1: Brilliant Roger, thank you very much. So, Stephen, we've we've heard about the investment grade market, and I guess the the, the kind of ratings changes we've seen in terms of different names that clearly uh, falls into to your world as well. And um, given the impact of the sell off was even more pronounced than high yield, what kind of changes have you seen? Is there been a clear distinction between the kind of winners and losers in your
2: space? Hi, Amit, again, and um, yes, it's it's a good question, and there's been so much changing over the past three months. Um, Initially, you know, the average bond was off by about 22 points in terms of cash price decline. Um, So, you know, the market in Europe went from sort of 104 to sort of 82 um, and total returns in the space of four weeks were were negative by about 20 percent or more slightly in that period. So. Um, yeah, it was pretty dramatic. And, you know, the demand for liquidity from investors who wanted to pull their money out of the market and, and liquidations was, was immense. So initially, it was pretty vacuous. And there wasn't a lot of, I would say, dispersion between the kind of relative winners and losers in the market, because people were desperate to secure liquidity. So good bonds from Decent, well run companies like uh, large French mobile businesses like Altis, SFR, bond, their bonds were down 20 odd points and they've got a very resilient business model. So, you know, people were just trying to access liquidity where they could. Um, since that point, which is probably the third week of March, you know, it's, we're, we're dialing forward the last couple of months, it's been are much more orderly, and what people are, are really um, trying to estimate in a very low visibility world is when do a lot of these businesses reopen. So, you know, in terms of of the winners, things like healthcare and, as I said, telecoms, food retail have been the relative success stories here. Um, but even a lot of those bonds have still got negative returns for the year um but you know the, the real losers have been travel impacted companies leisure whether you're talking people who, who um, provide gyms pubs gaming companies um, or theme parks um the general retail clearly has had a very poor time autos and of course let's not forget energy and oil which has had a, a real debacle globally with the, the collapse in in demand so yeah it's what what people are really trying to work out is How much of a re-leveraging event is it for these companies? Which ones will survive? Which ones get the support from shareholders or governments? Um, And how quickly demand comes back? So, without doubt, it's a very interesting marketplace for active um, security selection.
1: That's great, Steve. Um, there's just been this uh, phrase, which some of our listeners may be familiar with, some may not, um, of, of fallen angels. There's been a lot of talk about fall, fallen angels and they mean some notable names. Uh, firstly, can you, for our listeners, benefit our listeners, can you explain what fallen angels are? Given a few examples, maybe in the UK and, and in Europe, uh, and I guess the p- potential opportunities and risks that fallen angels present.
2: Sure. Well, a fallen angel is anything that used to be investment grade, which is anything rated triple B and above, like single A, double A, triple A. So you're talking rating categories double B and below. Um, now, what happens with with um, the way fixed income mandates tend to work is um, a lot of people draw a line between investment grade and high yield. So if a bond gets downgraded, so for instance, in the last several weeks, we've had the likes of British Airways, Marks & Spencers, um, Lufthansa, Renault, Kraft Heinz, um, companies like that. As soon as they cross the Rubicon into high yield, a lot of people have to sell. They're not allowed to to own those bonds. So price action can be quite jumpy and and, um, vacuous at times now that creates opportunities um, and and for us you know we've had something like 60 billion euros worth of fallen angels coming to the market in europe our market is about 350 billion in size to put that in context so that the market has grown in size this year and and ultimately it's it's down to you know which ones have got the levers to pull in terms of assets they can sell to shore up their balance sheets, um, who can turn to shareholders for rights issues, and which ones have got sustainable business models. Um, you know, a lot of them have structural decline issues in their industries. A lot of them are just cyclically effect- affected um, and will right-size in due course. But you know, clearly, again, that's up to us as um, you know, stock pickers and active managers to, to work out which ones are the winners and losers based on the, the valuation opportunities we're presented with, um, as we look forward, there's probably in Europe another seventy billion potentially of fallen angels. Um, you know the, the the amount of of rating agency actions has been unprecedented. I think the pace of of the of the sell off and the pace of the shutdown in economies is has never been seen before, um, and clearly how we reopen. Economies and the pace of that return and activity will de- will determine which ones will 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 win out, um, especially in in the, in the short to medium term. But um, yeah, definitely, it's it's a, a a huge source of focus for us. We've been very active in in that space as we we pick over the opportunity set the last several weeks.
1: And I guess one of the key key things for corporate bond investors, uh, and I guess in high yield, it's probably even more so a, a, a an important factor is the level of defaults so the level at which companies are not able to to meet their obligations when it comes to their um investors so what's priced in at the moment uh, in terms of defaults and how do you expect that uh, to change going forward
2: consensus expectations around defaults have, have narrowed quite a bit in the last several weeks so there, there's something a bit self-fulfilling about you know easier credit conditions mean lower defaults and as the market has has become a little bit more sanguine about the outlook and returned from quite distressed levels, then the, the expectation of defaults has reduced. But we're looking at around, I guess, one year forward, about 7% of the market in Europe is expected to default. And a lot of that is priced in already. Um, and credit spreads compensate you over and above for that level of defaults. Um, the question is how much do you need to get paid in excess of the cost of defaults which is always the challenge in, in allocating uh, money into the asset class um, so you're looking at probably seven percent for for bonds and about nine percent for loans is based on current expectations and clearly yeah, that's highly speculative analysis because it really depends on government policy and all the support schemes that have been put in place that Liam's talked to, and also, you know, just how, what, what's the attitude of, of the consumer and um, coming back, you know, from lockdown um, and, and clearly subject to, you know, hopefully we don't get a second COVID wave coming back. But, uh, you know, that's, it's clearly very and highly speculative to try and pick a number for defaults, but uh, it, it does go into most people's base cases, that kind of 7% number for Europe at the moment.
1: That's great. I mean, I guess that, that is just an important fact when it comes to investing in general, but um, being able to avoid the potential of, a you know, th- that 7% of the companies does represent good active management. I think that's that's positive for us. Um, in terms of the market environment, clearly things remain challenging and a bit volatile. And I guess what guidance would you give to investors out there when you're looking at valuations? Everybody talks about valuations of, of assets uh, and how you know we've seen a sell-off, a bit of a recovery. But I guess when you take that valuation in context of an investment horizon, um, what what would you kind of guidance and uh, would you give to, to investors?
2: I, th- I think it's very difficult to actually pick a, a moment in the market to think this is the great time to buy because, the market's been driven by headlines for the last several weeks and it doesn't take much of a headline to drive it higher or lower but the the scale of the moves is is, can be pretty large Um, i would worry less about trying to pick a moment to invest and think more about the power of the coupon you know the bulk of your returns in high yield come from carry and coupon and clearly we've got a i think a healing market here that's going to also give you some price appreciation Um, so i would think for the medium to long-term investor Um, Buying and holding and not fretting about short term moves is is I think that arguably the the best way to invest, given the market is so headline driven and and schizophrenic at the moment. So I think there's money to be made, but you just need to be patient because it it can come in short bursts. Um, But um, don't try and be too clever in terms of, of picking your spot in terms of timing.
1: Okay, so good, good things come to those who wait. A buy and hold situation. <laughs> so
2: yeah, I think so.
1: Brilliant, that's great. Thanks, Steve. And I guess save the best till last. Emerging market debt. So Edwin, um, the, the asset class is pretty vast, in the fact that you know there's you know dollar denominated bonds, local currency bonds, corporate bonds, but you've also got a distinction between um, you know mainstream uh, emerging market debt. Uh, bonds and also frontier markets, you know, that and particularly frontier was becoming a, quite a popular area for investors uh, before the pandemic. Um, what's your view of mainstream emerging market debt versus frontier at the moment?
5: Yeah, thanks, Amit. Uh, naturally, the asset class was hit across uh, the piece and. Frontiers, because it is the highest beta segment of the market, unsurprisingly, was hit the worst uh, during the March sell-off. This, of course, in general, is a region or a segment of the market, more accurately. That is particularly susceptible to falls in global demand and and also commodity shocks. Uh, A lot of these countries are big commodity exporters, things like oil and copper. So unsurprisingly, uh, this was the region that was hit the worst. But when we look at valuations, we find frontiers to be quite attractive compared to mainstream markets. And then we look at some of the details as well. You look at the pandemic, for instance. Thankfully, at least thus far, uh, frontier markets have been relatively spared compared to some of the mainstream uh, emerging markets when it comes to the, the, the pandemic itself. You see the negative headlines. They've been mostly, when it comes to emerging markets, in some of the bigger mainstream markets, places like Brazil, Russia, India, and Mexico. We think that you know, part of the reason for that lower uh, incidence of, of uh, COVID cases in frontier markets is general lower interconnectivity. You have fewer international flights to these countries uh it's also when you look at frontier markets generally speaking we're referring to countries with a, a far more youthful population if you take africa for instance as emblematic of that it really is the continent with the, with the lowest uh, youthful uh, uh, segment of the population and then as we we know uh, the young have definitely been less susceptible uh, to the symptoms of, of the COVID crisis. Uh, we do, also do know, though, that uh, low testing in general masks the true truth of case loads in frontier markets and emerging markets in general. And, and clearly, in frontier markets, uh, the absence of testing is going to be more acute than mainstream emerging markets. Just because public healthcare infrastructure, which is woeful in general emerging markets compared to developed markets, is also going to be the, the most lacking in frontier markets. But when we look at you know, those factors, we saw that frontier markets atypically lagged during the market rebound that we've now witnessed over the past two months. Part of this was a concern of wholesale defaults in frontier markets, uh, but we really don't think those are going to materialize, and so when you look at spreads – Versus mainstream markets, we got to about 400 basis points wide of mainstream markets and frontier markets. So that's a good it's 4% yield more that we're getting a pick, uh, pickup in frontier markets compared to mainstream markets. And it's similar to the story, which uh, Steve mentioned just in high yields. Yes, there are going to be defaults in frontier markets. But we do think that the spreads that are on offer compensate you for that default risk. Uh, but you know this is not to belittle some of the complications and the challenges uh, the policy response is definitely a lot more challenging from frontier markets uh, these are countries which have higher debt levels uh, than mainstream emerging markets so they simply can't ramp up spending to counteract the the impact of the of the covid crisis There's lower financial intermediation in these countries, which means the monetary transmission channel is much more limited. Uh, And QE, you can pretty much forget about. Uh, These are countries with very underdeveloped local bond markets. So there really isn't much in terms of bonds which central banks can actually buy in frontier markets Uh, and also the fact that with the vast majority of debts being denominated in foreign currency for these Frontier markets, the impact it would have on currencies and the worsening of debt ratios for these frontier markets, it's kind of a dangerous game. So it does limit the prospect or the, the availability of policy responses that frontier markets have compared to their mainstream peers.
1: Okay, so, and I guess a couple of examples of frontier markets um, that you like at the moment, are there any ones that you'd highlight in particular?
5: Yeah, when we've seen the rebound in frontier markets, it really has been led by Africa. Uh, there is does tend to be a conflation between frontier markets in Africa and that Africa uses frontier markets. But we actually think that there are interesting opportunities popping up in the Caribbean. And uh, now there is an additional challenge, which uh, the Caribbean and Central America are facing, which some of the other frontier market countries in Africa don't face. Uh, that is the impact of tourism. Uh, and also the impact of remittances, uh, because a lot of these Central American countries do get a lot of remittances, namely from the US, and clearly the lockdown is having a big impact there. But uh, if these countries, when you look at countries like uh, Bahamas, uh, also countries like El Salvador, they've been left behind in the rally. And we do think that the yields now on offer there do represent good value compared to some of the other frontier markets, which have actually now enjoyed a pretty sizable rebound since the lows.
1: So Edwin, that, that was great in terms of frontier uh, markets, but I guess another thing that emerging market debt investors need to be wary of is the impact of currency movements. So do you have any specific views here in terms of what to what you favor, what you're avoiding in currency?
5: Yeah, so that's a great question, Amit. If there's a segment of the market that we're probably less constructive on, it is EMFX in the sense that emerging markets are facing the biggest balance of payment shock, arguably in history. Uh, and That shock comes in numerous forms in the sense that we, of course, are getting the worst global recession or depression, really, uh, since the global depression. So a huge drop in global demand. Uh, I mentioned previously the impact of falling commodity prices, and some of these countries are big commodity exporters. So There is that impact as well. So it's not just the end demand, but it's also the price of the exports that has fallen. Uh, There's also the impact of supply chain disruption, which affects countries like Mexico or some of the Asian countries, which are integrated into the supply chain of China. So that's definitely going to be something that's going to have a a lasting impact. And I also mentioned briefly uh, in my previous response about the impact of falling tourism revenues, which we just have very low visibility as to when tourism is going to return to any kind of new normal or semblance of, of what it used to be like And then lastly, the impact of remittances as we have these lockdowns in developed market countries. And that, at least, is is easing, and remittances should start to recover a bit later on this year. But... This is a massive balance of payment shock, something that emerging markets really has not seen uh, in really in since the, the lifetime of this asset class. And as a result, FX does have to stay weak. Uh, this is the venting mechanism. This is how emerging market countries adjust to this massive global headwind. Uh, And also, when you see the policy response that we've seen more in mainstream emerging markets and frontier markets, we've seen rate cuts across the board, which implies a significant easing of monetary conditions. The last thing emerging market central banks would want to see is currency appreciation to offset the benevolent impact of those rate cuts.
1: That's brilliant. Thank you, Edwin. That was great. Well, that, that's the lockdown edition now complete, but I'd like to thank all our speakers and I'd like to thank everyone listening in. Uh, just a little bit of um, housekeeping in the sense that if you have any questions or any um, thoughts about our views or, or anything to do with Aberdeen Stan Investments, please get in touch with your, your regular Aberdeen Stan Investments contact. But for now, I'd like to say thank you to everybody and we'll speak to you
5: next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.
0: This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for information purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen Standard Investments. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns. Return projections are estimates and provide no guarantee of future results. Investment Insights by Aberdeen Standard Investments